0: Presenting a really big deal for young drivers. Get a great price on the car cover you need with our 20% sign up discount. Just search Super Value Insurance and get a great quote now. This car insurance is underwritten by AXA Insurance DAC. Super Value Financial Services DAC, trading as Super Value Insurance, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.
1: We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to Elders both past, present and emerging. Hi, welcome
0: back to Murder in the Land of
1: Oz. Uh,
0: Jess was just licking chocolate off her fingers before we did our clap. <laughs> way She's to shatter, chocolate way to shatter the
1: illusion, yes. I, I bought a bag of flake bites for to go and see Frozen 2 today, and now it's just dust
0: at the bottom. Delicious, delicious flake dust. Yes. Hi, guys. I have – hi, everyone. Um, What did you have? Tell me. Oh, I was just going to say that I have an unopened thing of vegan chocolate. See – Just folks at home,
1: um, Ellen doesn't indulge in the sweet tooth. So her eating chocolate, like when she showed up with a thing of Toblerone a few weeks ago, I was shooketh.
0: That's like a sign of severe, like, mental instability for me. (laughs)
1: It's a sign that I'm breathing, if I'm honest. (laughs) Is she alive? Is she (laughs) ingesting chocolate? Yeah, rock on. Um, So welcome back to part two of – okay, and I think it's a good sign that I never remember this asshole's name because he doesn't need to be remembered. Eric Edgar Cook. Yes. Great. Okay, cool. Um, But we have some people to shout out first because we've had a surge of Patreon supporters. Oh, and we hit 10,000 subscribers. (laughs) Oh, my God. We haven't talked about it yet. And we have a new logo. We hope you like it because we love it.
0: I think it looks great except every person that I've showed it to has said – that looks nothing like you, which makes me upset because I think it's a really nice drawing of me. <laughs> I think it looks like you. So now I'm – I think it looks like me too. She's, she really, like, nailed the fact that my eyebrows are two completely different shapes. I really appreciated that attention to detail. Because I've got you, it Hale. as my
1: phone background.
0: Oh, wow. That's, that sounds like something you would do. <laughs> Why? Don't you have it as your phone background? No, I've had the same phone background since I was, like, 19. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much again to <laughs>
1: Hannah um who did Hannah Good um art on Instagram so make sure you follow her like she nailed our brief perfectly like when we got the illustration mm-hmm. without the color we were both just like oh my god and then she, she added was like
0: yeah. let me know like what we should do and I was like it's done it's done like it's that's done. you've nailed it like
1: that's it and then she put the color on she put my glasses on and I was like rock on here we go and the
0: blood Jess's splatter. New phrases, rock on. yes we love a little bit of Jess's fitness. new what Said Jess's new phrase is rock on. Yeah.
1: Thanks, Ellen rock, or Rock or on Julie. is happening
0: in a big way. It is. Yes. you are embracing it. You haven't said it. stunning in a while.
1: I mainly say stunning. <laughs> anyway, Patreons? Patreons? Anyway, Patreons.
0: Yes. Who do we need to thank? Anyway, we need to thank Jamie. Thank you, thank Jamie. You Jamie. What a beautiful, wonderful person you are. Nicolette. Thank you, Nicolette. Thank you, thank you Nicolette. I sent Nicolette a really long message. Um, I hope it didn't freak you out. Sorry, Nicolette. <gasps> Hannah. Thank you, Thanks, Hannah. Thanks, Hannah. You're amazing. Um, she also liked all of our uh, podcast episodes that we posted on the Patreon. Doll. I appreciate Double a thank p- you to p- Hannah. Like, wait, oh, God. What an effort. What an effort. Um, shout out to Zoe. We, we shouted out Zoe a couple of weeks ago because a friend of mine is a friend of hers and was like, my friend listens to your podcast. And I was like, I'll shout her out. And then she became a patron. Thank, thank you, Zoe. Thank you, Zoe. Oh, my God. That's so lovely of you. So lovely um thank you to isabel thank you isabel what an angel You're amazing such an angel um thank you to drumroll please shakira <gasps> stop
1: it we have
0: a patreon called shakira is it the shakira it's not the, it's not the shakira but it is the shakira right. you know what yeah. i mean <laughs> like she's the, she's the other the shakira shakira doll. Um, congrats on the name and thank also you. thank you so much Thank you, Shakira. I've had Shakira, Shakira in my head like nonstop since I messaged her on Patreon. And our final person to thank is one of my favorite people in the entire world, Sky, who is my brother's girlfriend, oh. and she listens to, she listens to the podcast while she works um, in the butchers at IGA, and it makes she's she she likes she, there's like a, a beautiful kind of like marriage of like wrapping up you know packets of. Raw meat and listening to murder podcasts. I just find really, really beautiful. Thank you, Sky, you you sweet baby angel. She's amazing. Love you, Sky. I hope you enjoy this episode. And that's our new Patreon. That's our new Patreon. So, quite a surge
1: of Patreon supporters. So, if you want to join on the uh, Patreon, Bandwagon. Um, we'll have the links in the show notes. Um, we've got some Mitlio After Dark content that will be going up in uh, like three days or so. Um, and then I'm going to be doing – the, the case that was most suggested after we basically planned all of WA was Claremont, the Claremont killings. So I'm going to be doing that on Patreon. So I've got my work cut out for me. Um Anyway, uh, so yeah, want to join the Patreon, go for it. Um, we've got merch on uh, Redbubble and TeePublic. Um, uh, what, what other things? Uh, if you want to send us an email about cases for the Northern Territory, um, I know that I've got my first case lined up. I'm going to be talking about Peter Falconio. Which is going to be good. So if you have any other cases that you'd like us to cover, please let us know. Um, If you want to send us an email to um, – we've gotten some really lovely emails. Actually, there was one that I wanted to mention. Um, So recently what we've been doing here at TNC is um, we've done new welcomes to country because it's really important to acknowledge that we are on and what has always been Indigenous land – um and we got a beautiful message from I think her name was Ashley let me find it
0: didn't we read out Ashley's email last week did we
1: well I want to I just want to acknowledge again um Ashley thank you so much for reaching out just to say um you know you know it was really lovely to you know acknowledge that you know we've done this welcome to country because it is a little bit um the welcome to country, it is really important. It We were a bit worried that it was going to feel a little bit general, but just because we cover a lot of – like we cover an entire country, so there's, you know, thousands of um, tribes of people that – you know, cover the land that we talk about, but we just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, we stand on and we are telling the stories of a land that has always been indigenous land and always will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I was just beside myself at work when I read that email, I had like a 10 minute break and I had some really awful customers and I read out that email and I just was like sobbing at work and everyone's like, you're right, Han? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's just, I just thought oh, that's so nice. Um, so if you
0: have anything like that, feel free to send us an email. I wi- yeah if you have anything that makes us our lives like just remind us that our lives are worth living and like not everything is horrible please please yeah rock send on it to us we've had we, we we've it. had
1: we've had a rough couple of weeks personally we won't go into that
0: but you got anything nice to say we will
1: take that we will i will yeah,
0: I, my my self-esteem needs loading yeah right like i need i need a little hit just a smart hit you know
1: um so just yeah a smart old hit uh, some that and that, that covered um is there anything else
0: Just that we like you We like you. Oh,
1: also just wanted to stress the importance of iTunes reviews. So there has been some lovely people that have um, left us some beautiful comments on there. Um, Please make sure you're rating and reviewing if you do like the content. It's very important. Just make sure that we get out there basically. So, yeah. Um,
0: Okay, last episode of WA. I'm very excited. Okay, Ellen, take it away. Let's take it away. So we left off with um, our friend and foe eric Ed cook having murdered a whole bunch of people on australia day which was not, not very patriotic um he didn't wait very long to strike again so on february 9th 1963 which was just about two weeks after australia day because that's how time works uh he was back to business so he was he was protected a little bit because this other massive crime had happened which had Like slightly taken away attention from the Australia Day things, this guy had shot a cop, shot and killed a cop, and was on the run. So there was this massive manhunt for this cop-killer guy Mm. and so all the police were out doing this and Cook was like, excellent, I can prowl the streets without worrying about police getting to me. Although he wasn't necessarily all that worried about police getting to him anyway. But he basically had free reign. So he started off by stealing a car from Leonora Street in South Perth. And he had the vibe that he would like to hit somebody with that car. That was the kind of particular thing he was feeling that day. So he followed, he tried to run down this couple that were on the back of a Vespa, but another car came driving down the road and stopped him from doing it. Thank God, praise Jesus. Um, So he he tried to follow the people on the Vespa, but he ended up losing their track. So instead he came across a woman named Rosemary Anderson, who was walking alone down Stubbs Terrace. So Rosemary was, like, striding on home after she'd had this argument with her boyfriend, John Button. So she was really upset. And so they'd had this argument at John's house, and John had gotten in the car to take after Rosemary, Mm. um, but she was like following along the car and was like, Please babe, get in the car, like I'm sorry and she was like, No, leave me alone. So she kept on going. He stopped the car a few blocks away and like tried to give her time to cool off. And then he had a cigarette and he calmed down as well and then he went to go after her again. But in that time Cook had found her walking alone and run he had hit him. he had hit her with his car. So John, you know, literally blocks away gets back in his car, drives to where he thinks that his girlfriend Rosemary is going to be, doesn't see her, goes up the street, is like, wow, there's no way she could have walked this far, does a U-turn, comes back and sees, like, a pile of something on the side of the road, and he's like, no, no way, like, nothing could have happened to her, gets out of the car and finds Rosemary lying in the sand covered in blood. So he throws himself out, out of the car, he runs to her, calls her name, and tries to wake her up, but she's unconscious. So he, you know, he picks up, he picked up her body, um, and you know, she he was kind of struggling with it a little bit because she was she was quite tall. She weighed almost the same amount as John did, and was trying to put her like in the back of the car so he could take her to a doctor's surgery yeah. to get her looked at because he immediately knew that you know something was terribly wrong. Um he wasn't aware that he was actually being watched by three guys who were in another car who had stopped because they'd seen Rose Murray's body on the side of the street as well and then they'd seen John like run to her and were like and like seen her seen him pick up her body and they were looking at it and they were like oh my god this person's carrying a dead body what if this guy is the Australia Day killer like what if we stumbled across you know uh, the commission of a crime yeah. so they were watching they were watching to you know you know, they didn't offer to help because they assumed they thought he had something worst. to do with they, it. Yeah. They thought that he'd had something to do with it. So, John eventually gets her in the car. He drives her a little bit down the road to Dr. Quinlevin's doctor's surgery, and the three guys in the car followed. And then, when they see him get out of the car at the doctor's surgery, they realize who it is and then they go and try and offer to help. But, John's like, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. So, John goes and gets the doctor. Um, he. Explained what happened and came and like went back to the car, carried Rosemary out of the car and into the doctor's surgery. And the doctor immediately realizes that you know there is nothing that he can really do for her at the doctor's surgery. So he um, he calls the ambulance. He cleans the the blood away from Rosemary's like, mouth area so to to help her keep on breathing. Mm. And then he called the police as well. So Rosemary was taken away in the ambulance when it arrived. But the doctor told John to wait. And wait for the police. So after striking Rosemary Anderson with his car, Cook had gone to an area called Kings Park, and he ran the stolen car into a tree to hide the damage that Rosemary's body had caused. And he left the car and opened the two front doors, so it looked like you know two teens had been joyriding or something like that and crashed the car. Um, So the police eventually arrived to Dr. Quinlevin's surgery. And they found John there, and John was, like, quite in shock still, and he kind of stumbled through a kind of rambling version of events, and he seemed – he seemed off to the police. He was really nervous. He was, like, kind of stumbling over his words and everything like that, and the police were like, uh uh-huh. mm-hmm. So John's like, oh, yeah, me and my, me and my girlfriend, like, we had a fight, and then she left the house, and then I was waiting for her to cool off, and then by the time I got there, like, her body – I just found her body, blah, 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 and the police were like, uh-huh, buddy. Yeah. Sure you did. sure." Um – so, the police are, like, they're listening to the story. They notice that John's car actually does have a couple of little dents in it, um, which was unknown to them, actually, because John had gone into a rather minor car accident a couple of weeks earlier, and they were just little, tiny dents. Like, they weren't, like, full-on massive damage. Right. Um, so... basically from this point like John Mulaney has this really great bit and not to be that person who quotes like stand-up comedians but he has this really great bit about how like police work back in the day is like all about hunches how they're like you know all you had to do back in the day was have a hunch and as long as you had a hunch you'd manage to solve the crime because you you followed your hunch so the police had this hunch that John had hit Rosemary with the car so they told John that he wasn't going to be going to the hospital to see Rosemary he's was going to be coming back to the police station with them, so he was taken to the CIB and he was questioned all night. So they took him there and they were asking him all these questions and making him go over the story again and again and again. He was never told that he was wasn't being held. He was never told that he was allowed to leave, and he also wasn't really told anything about Rosemary's condition. So she's been rushed to the um, like to the hospital, like in a very very critical condition, yeah. and he has no idea. He's just sitting in the surgery in the um police station having no idea what's happened so he answers all the questions and eventually he gives a written statement to police at 2 15 a.m so for context rosemary had been hit just before 11 p.m so he's been in the police station for more than three hours at this point um also because he'd like just left the house like to follow rosemary he didn't have like shoes on or anything like that he was just sitting in the police station in like shirt and pants and that's it so he's he's like you know he's not He's not in a good way. No. So the police get him to write down the statement, and they review the statement, and they're like, mm, yeah, we, we do not trust this person. We do not trust this young person. They thought that the reason that um, John and Rosemary had ha- had an argument, which was ridiculous, so what was happening is that they were sitting at their house, they'd gotten fish and chips, they'd had like one piece of f- fish each or whatever, and John was like sitting there. They were also with John's brother. John was, like, sitting there, and he sees, like, a hand go over to, like, steal his fish, and he, like, snapped at the person, was like, don't do that, thinking that it was his brother who he could be mean to, but actually it was his girlfriend who he shouldn't have been mean to, and Rosemary got really upset, and that's why she stormed off. So she gives the story to the police, and the police are like, That's dumb. (laughs) They're like, bro, that's dumb. Like, there's no way. And, like, she stormed out of the house crying. Like, she was really upset. The police were like... Yeah, that doesn't track. Mm. Like, that level of being upset doesn't track with somebody just trying to steal your fish and being upset about okay. it. Um, so they they told they said that they thought John was a liar, basically. And John had lied to the police, but not about the fish and chips. So he had omitted, apart from his statement, he said that when he and Rosemary had gone to get the food, they'd just driven straight back home. But they didn't drive straight back home. They parked the car and engaged in a little bit of adult activity before they returned home. But obviously, John didn't want to tell the police that because it was 1963 and they weren't, they married. weren't married. Rosemary Rosemary was 17 and John was 19 years old. So it would have been a, a pretty big, you know, Okay, I thought scandal. you were going to say, like, she
1: was 17 and he was... <laughs> 47 and I was like (laughs) oh
0: no no they were they had a completely appropriate age difference but she was a teenager they weren't married you know so she he didn't want to like sully rosemary's good name. no of course not okay which is very respectable good on you john yeah yeah so that kind of like knowing that he had lied was making him probably act a little bit and like not knowing what was going on and everything like that was act making him act a little bit more nervous probably So at 3:15 a.m. they had a break from the interrogation and John was like please can somebody just let tell me, me know what's what the going fuck on tell me what's going on with Rosemary the police officer is like cool off in the hospital comes back a few minutes later and is like i have to inform you that rosemary has died no cushioning, nothing he, they're just like rosemary's dead um, and she had died at – so she she was in a really critical condition when they first arrived, but they gave her – like, they stitched her up, they gave her a blood transfusion, and she was stabilizing, but then suddenly her vitals just crashed, and she just – you know, one second she was alive, one second she was dead, basically, after that. But she died at 2.30 a.m., so she had been dead for almost an hour before anybody bothered to tell John. Don't kind of love so, that. Don't love that. So they told John. He immediately freaks out. He's like, I've got to go to the bathroom right now. Immediately, he goes to the bathroom, throws up for a while, comes back. And when he comes back, like, as you can imagine, like, he's just completely desolate. Like, he he he's he's devastated. Like, his whole world has completely been destroyed in the past couple of hours. Like, he and Rosemary, like, they've been together for a long time. They'd had this be- really beautiful love story. Like, they were planning on getting engaged Like she was like his world and now she's gone all of a sudden. And, you know, just because of his mental state at the time and everything like that, he made a decision, a really bad decision, the consequences of which I'm sure he never considered at the time. But he said to the police, okay, I'll tell you what you want to hear. I'll confess to her murder. No! In his mind, he's thinking, like, the only thing I can do to get out of this room and possibly go and see her and possibly make this whole nightmare come to an end is to tell them what they want to hear. Oh, that happens so much. It happens so much. And, like, you know, this isn't, like, a confession tapes thing. Like, he, he was held there for quite a few hours. Like, don't get me wrong. But, like... You know it was not like he was tortured or anything like that no. but it is that relentless like being questioned and questioned and questioned you know you're telling the truth they're accusing you of lying it's understandable that you know you'll make a wrong decision in that moment yeah so he gave the police another written statement so he said that the real reason that they'd argued is because he had tried to get fresh was the terminology with rosemary and she'd rejected him so and he'd gotten really really angry about it and she'd stormed off and he'd followed her in the car to beg her to come back and she'd refused so he said that he was driving really fast um he was driving as fast as he possibly could really close to rosemary so she he could scare her but he accidentally hit her with the car so the police finally accepted this version of events and charged john with willful with willful murder and he was held in remand at Fremantle prison in solitary confinement until his trial a few months later. And I'll get into that trial in approximately 35 minutes because Eric Cook is not done with his activities. So a few weeks after Rosemary Rosemary's death, the night after Valentine's Day in 1963, it was an extremely hot night in Perth. Um, Cook had spent the evening prowling around when he came across the house of Jennifer Hurst and Lucy Madrill on Thomas Street in West Perth. So, Lucy was a social worker, and she had been working in the very 1960sly named Native Welfare Department. Nice. Um, Yeah, I'm like, oh, I certainly hope they've changed that name. Um, And she was working on helping Aboriginal women and children in urban areas, and she and Jennifer had only moved into the house two months prior. Obviously unknown to them, Cook had already broken into their house three weeks previously. So, the front window of the house was open, but Cook decided to sneak around the back so he wouldn't be seen from the road. So he broke in. He came across Jennifer's room first and like had a look at her, but like decided that he wasn't really, she wasn't really his type, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did steal one pound from her purse, and then he headed into Lucy's room. Lucy was lying on top of the bed. She was wearing only a sheer nighty because it was so hot. And Cook was like, "Let's go." So he walks over to the bed. In his haste to get to her, he knocks a photo off her nightstand, which wakes Lucy up. So she tried to get out of bed to run away, but Cook punched her in the head so hard that her head smacked against the back wall. Um, and She tried to scream, but Cook grabbed her by the throat hold it, and held her in a chokehold. and then pulled her from the bed out of her room into a spare room that he'd passed before where there was a mattress lying on the ground. He threw her onto the mattress and grabbed a cord from a nearby lamp and strangled her with it, holding it there for several minutes until she eventually fell still. He then raped her dead body writing that sentence like when i was writing that episode i was like this is one of those moments where i'm like why are we doing this? why are we why doing do this to, say, to ourselves? why do i have to say the words raped a dead body for people to listen to horrific so despite committing what the any sane person would consider to be the most fucked up crime you could possibly commit he decided that he wasn't finished with lucy so he dragged her dead body out of the house and down a laneway And while he was dragging, he kept on like changing the way that he was holding her because she was like, I, I think I mentioned this before, but like Cook was like quite small. He was like a small, quite light guy. Um, I think he was like my height and he weighed like, well, that doesn't matter to anybody who doesn't know me. He was like 160 or like 165 centimeters or something like that. And he weighed 126 pounds, which is like quite small. So he wasn't really, he wasn't doing very well, like dragging her body down, um, And Lucy's cat had actually, like, attacked him. Like, so the cat, like, saw him dragging the body down the laneway and, like, went and, like, attacked him and, like, scratched him up and stuff like that. So shout out to that cat. The most loyal cat ever. So he dragged Lucy's body down the laneway to the house behind hers, which was a very large, fancy mansion. And it belonged to a wealthy family in the area called the Nobles. And one of the Nobles was a well-known presenter for Channel 7 at the time. He dumped Lucy's body in their yard underneath their washing line. This next next bit is a little weird. So there was an empty whiskey bottle lying near where he put the body. So he took the bottle and inserted it. I'm so sorry, inserted it into Lucy's body and then took it out and then like left it lying like underneath her armpit. Jess is holding her head in her hands for very good reason. I'm sure other people are holding their head in their hands right now. I'm holding my soul in my hands. The – what the fuck, right? Like, what?
1: I'm sorry, this isn't very good po- co- podcast content because I am literally <laughs> losing my shit right now. Jess just in silence. Like, I literally just – that's the longest I've ever been silent in my life, I think.
0: Yeah. I just,
1: you know <sighs> – Oh, I don't like that in the slightest
0: like- – this guy's, like, fucked
1: up beyond belief from top like, to bottom. trying like, to explain to people, like, I've been fucked up by some serious, like, obviously, like, every crime we talk about is awful. But, like, mm-hmm. this is honestly the worst story I have ever heard in my entire life.
0: I, you just, you know, every single time something happens, you're like, this makes no sense. Not even, like, no rational person would act like this. Not even a murder. Like, murderer. Like, sometimes, you know, there is, there is a logic Sometimes you're like definitely don't agree, like not supporting this, but understand your internal logic. There is no internal logic in. Any I don't of understand this. any of this. It's just violence and like murder for violence and murder's sake, and that is just it's beyond twisted. And homeboy's just having a grand old time. He's just loving doing it. And he's like, oh yes, this is exciting. I'm just going to go home now to my wife and child. When like, is he going and six to get children caught? Actually. <laughs> Look, this is a long episode. I'm not going to lie. This one? Yeah. We've got, like, we've got a lot to go. We're on page two of 11. (sighs) Sorry, everybody. My my news resolution is to write short episodes. Anyway, so he does that. He leaves – it's not going to happen. I'm a very verbose lady. So he leaves Lucy's body there, naked and degraded, to be discovered by the noble family the next morning. Much as this has baffled us, the murder also baffled the detectives at the time. You don't they just say. get there and they're like they're like, What the fuck, man? Again like, why? Again? So they question all of the people that Lucy knows, but they kind of like from the get go were like, Okay, you know, the fact that she was like murdered in her house without her housemate waking up, they're like, This, this guy's done is it most before. likely.
1: Well, they thought that
0: – yes, but also they were like, this is a prowler. This is somebody who's experienced at, like, being in people's homes late at night. Mm. And they'd known that there'd been reports of prowlers in the area. In fact, the people who had lived in the house prior to Jennifer and Lucy had moved out partly because of a prowler. Like, the the lady was frightened because of this prowler being in the neighborhood all Don't the time. Don't blame your hun. Do not blame your hun, but also potentially should have told the new tenants about that. Potentially. Just potentially could have, like, passed that message on. So police were pretty hopeful um, about getting some evidence from this crime, unlike any of the other ones that they had, because there was um, semen on top – they found traces of semen on top of the whiskey bottle. And they'd recently – in London, they'd recently, like, developed technologies that would able them – which had enabled them to get the blood type from semen. So this is, again, pretty early forensics. So they took – they literally, like – they didn't ship it. Like, a guy, Dr. Drummond, like, the forensic examiner, took – the whiskey bottle himself in a briefcase to london to have it examined Holy shit. um yeah they were like they were not fucking around but unfortunately the results came back with nothing so in the span of a few short weeks like again this is like february so in a few short weeks perth had gone through the australia day shootings the manhunt for the cop killer the hit and run death of rosemary anderson and the subsequent arrest of her boyfriend john button and now the murder of lucy madrill But obviously the people of Perth did not know that one man was responsible for all but one of those crimes. And the police kind of didn't help matters because people were really like, like, oh my God, what the fuck is happening in Perth? Like, what's going on? You know, is this all the same guy? And the police were like, you know, based on the way that this crime happened, we don't think that the Australia Day shooting and this murderer are the same person.
1: Which is what Because they're so different.
0: Exactly. Yeah. so it's no wonder. Like I'm not blaming the police. I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't have I wouldn't, strung this together. I sure wouldn't have put two and two together. No. I'd be like, well, it's a ghost. Well, um, the paranormal. Well, the paranormal. So John Button's trial was set to begin on April 29th, 1963, and John's family, who were like so convinced that John didn't do it because they knew that he was just like freaking obsessed with Rosemary, managed to get him a really, really, really good lawyer um, named Ken Hatfield. And at first, Ken and his clerk Bart were not super convinced of John's innocence, and they told – because he'd confessed – and they said to John, like, look, you're better off to accept a deal and just do 10 years for manslaughter. But John refused. And so, like, you know, the fact that he had refused to accept the deal, like, he confessed to the crime, and, like, this was a capital murder. Like, he could – he was facing the death penalty. Like, if he's convicted convicted he, of willful murder, he would have been hanged 100%. Yeah. So the fact that he was saying, like, no, I will not plead guilty to this crime, like, I did not do it, in the face of potentially being hanged, made them, like, realise, like, oh, shit, this dude's the real deal. He did not do it. So... Which is tricky when you've said
1: that he did... A, mm.
0: Yeah. But he'd had the statement saying that he didn't do it, and then he'd had the statement saying that he did do it. So, like, you know... Yeah, he confessed, but he also didn't confess, right. you know, Okay, but also he did confess. Um, so, so we've got Ken Hatfield on the defense side. We've got Ron Wilson, who is the, um, I don't know if they were called the director of public Prosec- prosecutions at the time, but he's that, he's the crown prosecutor. Right. Um, the trial was actually pretty short. It lasted only about eight days. So Ken Hatfield's first move was to ask the judge to prevent the prosecution from bringing up the confession in their opening statements. He was like, we are going to argue basically that the confession was not given willingly um, and therefore it shouldn't be used as evidence and therefore the prosecution shouldn't be allowed to bring in questionable evidence in their opening statement. And the judge was like, sounds good. No confession in the opening statement. So the prosecution um, prosecution didn't refer to the confession in their opening statements, but instead they, they basically painted the scene which is different to what John initially confessed to. Remember he said that he accidentally ran Rosemary over when he was trying to scare her. Yeah. But the confession the prosecution said that he had intentionally run down Rosemary with the intent to murder her. So the first people to be the first witnesses to be called were the medical professionals who had attended Rosemary in hospital and the medical officer who had conducted her autopsy. So Rosemary had suffered extensive injuries to her face, including a laceration the length of her right eyebrow, which had bled profusely and was likely source of blood evidence at the scene. Um, and she also had several other small abrasions and lacerations to the face. She had abrasions to her right forearm and to the back of her left hand and fingers. She had larger abrasions on her thighs and knees and small lacerations on her toes. Her fibula was fractured and internally, Rosemary had suffered a large subarachnoid hemorrhage, which means bleeding in the space between the brain and the tissue that covers the brain. Um, And she had that over the entire surface of her brain as well as bruising to her temporal lobe. Her liver was torn. She had hemorrhages to her kidneys and spleen and her abdominal cavity had been filled with blood. The injuries were said to be consistent with being hit by a car. So after that traumatic medical evidence was given, um, the police who had analyzed the crime scene and Rosemary's father were questioned about the damage to John's car. So as I said, there was like a little, there there was a little bit of damage to John's car. There was a couple of dents in the front and there was a depression that was 20 centimeters long, but quite shallow. To the front top bonnet of his car. So not really consistent with having hitting someone. Not really consistent with having hit someone and there was also microscopic and like literally microscopic like so small that like the only person who noticed them was the forensic examiner like drops of blood on the bonnet on the outside of the car but yeah no evidence like you would, like we've all even on TV or whatever we've seen a car crash like we've seen the kind of damage that happens you know when something hits a car that is traveling like 35 miles per hour is like i'm gonna get this wrong but it's like 80 kilometers an hour or something like that like it's not slow no you know was going pretty fast um and that causes whether you're hitting a tree or another car or a person that causes that kind of velocity causes a lot of damage Yeah, but that just wasn't present on the front of this car so um mr anderson rosemary's father had said that he had seen damage to john's car because of the accident that john had been in the, a couple of weeks prior to rosemary's death but that he that some of the damage he had only noticed after rosemary's death so he was like yes it was damaged beforehand but there was also fresh damage to the car right so um one of the people who one of the witnesses who was in the car who watched john move the body also gave his version of events and he had said that he had seen a person bending over a body lying on the side of the road but on cross-examination he admitted that he was in the back seat and he didn't really see, like he didn't have the best view of what was going on. So the other two witnesses were um, prepared to testify but were never called. Um, So the police vehicle examiner, Constable Trevor Condren was questioned and he actually said that there was no significant damage to the front of the car or the headlights or the windscreen and that the damage just to the grill was consistent with the story of John's minor car accident a few weeks prior. Um, So. Yeah, the the defense is really painting the picture of, like, there is not enough damage to this car for Mm. John to have done this. Um, So they called up Detective Deering, who is the um, police officer in charge of the investigation, the one who had questioned John. So when he's called up, Hatfield is like, okay, jury, get out. Now is our time to be like, we do not want the confession to be um, admitted as evidence. So... The duration of the arguments about whether or not to let in the confession lasted for more than a day. John was called up to testify, and he said basically like the, the more he denied having anything to do with Rosemary's death, the more intensely the police questioned him. The more that they ran down on him, he said that the police said things like, "Well, if you did knock her down, it would be better if you tell us now because we're going to find out the truth either way." Um, he said that the police asked him the same question dozens of times, no matter what his answers were, as well no matter what his answer was. And any little, like, mistake that he'd made was brought back to him, basically. Like, you know, if he said, oh, well, you know, it was about 11 o'clock, and the next time he said it was eleven past 5 past 11 or something, they were like, oh, well, but you said it was 11 o'clock Was it initially. 11 or was it
1: 5 past 11? Yeah.
0: Exactly. Which is kind of like standard police tactics, but, you know. Um, and he said that he could tell, like, from the beginning that the police didn't believe him, and he couldn't understand why the police didn't believe him. And then he also said that, you know, as I said before, when he found out that Rosemary died, he basically just stopped caring about what happened to him. He said that he changed his statement because it, it had become apparent that the police weren't going to let him go until he'd admitted he'd done it. He said that the police suggested aspects of the confession, like Rosemary getting angry because John had decided to get fresh with her and the fact that he had just tried – he the reason that he had driven the car dangerously was to try and scare her. He said that it was all coming from the police. Right. So – the, the judge listens to all this and is like, cool story, I'm going to allow the confession anyway. Sorry about that. Um, so the jury was then allowed back into the courtroom and Detective Deering read John's confession to the court. Hatfield cross examined Deering extensively and Deering was forced to admit that at no point he, did he or any other police officer tell John that he was not being held and that he was free to leave at any time. John was brought to the stand again to give his evidence about the coerced statement in front of the jury. In his closing statements, Hatfield outlined the lack of damage to John's car, the microscopic specks of blood on the bonnet being consistent with car stuff. He didn't use the word car stuff. I don't know if they knew. I don't know if that's how far they'd gone with blood spatter at this point in time. But he said that it was consistent with John carrying Rosemary's body near the car and not with him having hit her with the car. Mm Mm-hmm. He stated with that while the post-mortem evidence was clear that Rosemary had definitely died from being hit by a car, the lack of damage made it clear that it could not have been John's car that had done it. Right. He also, like, slammed into the detectives that interviewed John, saying that there was nothing that John could have said to get him out of the interrogation room other than a confession. Hatfield said that the detectives had already decided that John was guilty before he was questioned. Nothing in terms of physical evidence, mattered because they knew once they had a confession, they knew there was no way John was going to get away with it. The prosecution in their closing argument stated that the evidence indicated that John's car had hit. They were like, John definitely hit Rosemary Anderson. The question is not if he hit her, but what the intention was. He said They said that the jury's job was to s- decide whether or not John was guilty of willful murder, murder or manslaughter. or manslaughter. They were like, did he intend to kill her or did he not? Um, They also pointed out the kind of spectacular coincidence that Rosemary would be hit by a car when John was just far enough away to not see anything, but close enough that he was able to render assistance to her. They said that if the accused car wasn't the car, then the coincidences required would be colossal they also like used this piece of evidence from the post-mortem so the forensic examiner was questioned about whether or not rosemary's hymen was intact and he said that it was so he could he like literally said like yes rosemary was still a virgin when she died which obviously wasn't true because john had had sex with her early in that day but john was also glad that the examiner had said that because he was like well i didn't want everybody to like i didn't want her good name to be disgraced after after death but they used that information to kind of you know paint rosemary like this you know this sounds awful but paint rosemary is like the innocent virgin who was like fighting off the advances from her boyfriend like you know and she'd refused and she was all moral and stuff like that and john was this evil guy who just wanted to get fresh with her right which obviously you know it's 1963 that kind of story is like they're like bad man you know um So, yes, as I mentioned before, Wilson finished his closing arguments with the discussion about intention. He said that the question, says, the question resolves itself into this. What does a person intend when he drives a car deliberately at a girl at 35 miles per hour? He is charged with willful murder because his conduct, it is suggested to you, is consistent only with an intention to kill or if not to kill, to cause grievous bodily harm. The judges summing up kind of echo that point um, and emphasize that the jury was responsible for finding John guilty or not guilty of willful murder, murder or manslaughter. The judge said on the matter of intent, you may ask yourself this question, if the story is true and the accused really only intended to scare Rosemary by driving the car as closely as possible, why did he not realize he was getting too close to her? Why did he not attempt to apply his brakes or swerve? In the absence of any such attempt, is it probable that all he wanted to do was frighten Rosemary? So the jury didn't take long to deliberate, and when they came back to deliver the verdict, the foreperson said, they were like, have you reached a verdict? Yes. How do you find the defendant? And then they said, we we find the defendant not guilty. And John Button is like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then they're like, wait, 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 wait. no, sorry. sorry, Not guilty of murder. Not guilty of murder, guilty of of manslaughter. manslaughter. So John's like, oh, oh no. Oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, So John would be sentenced a few days later on the 6th of May, 1963. And the judge was not lenient with John. He was just saying, like, you know, I just cannot understand why you committed this crime. And everybody who knows was like, because he didn't commit the crime, you fucking (laughs) moron. But the judge was like, it's just such a horrible crime. I can't understand why you've done it. I sentence you to 10 years imprisonment with hard labor. So, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Rosemary Anderson's real killer was out living large. So he spent most of 1963 breaking into houses, of course, that's his favorite thing to do, and supplementing his income with small sums that he would take from people's wallets. But small sums add up and Cook was not hurting for cash. He was also very much enjoying the atmosphere of fear that he had created. So the police were still investigating the Australia Day killer and the city was really on alert for another attack. And people were also wising up to the reports of prowlers in the area. So people's, like, personal security was a bit more enhanced, and Cook was caught more than a few times trying to break into houses or inside people's houses. Or in one instance, he literally just walked into a house where a woman named Phyllis Thompson, like, was, and it was, like, the evening, and she was, like, cooking her kids dinner, and he just walked in, and she was like, what the
1: fuck fuck are are you doing
0: in here? And he just, like, stood in there and asked her all these questions, was like, oh, how are, you, how are your kids? Like, what, what grade are they in at school? And she's like, Get okay. out of my house. Well, she was like, no, keep calm. You don't know what this man's going to do to you. Just answer his questions. So she answered the questions, and he was like, right, cool, and then just left. He didn't do anything. He just is a crazy man. But I like the story. I want it to be done. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So, um, in June, Cook entered the home of Carmel Reed. So Carmel was sleeping in her bedroom. She woke up when she heard movement and she said, is anybody out there? And she could see the faint image of a man at the end of her bed, which is also what I see every time I close my eyes at night because I have a terrible, terrible fear of this exact incident occurring. So um, Cook shone a torch in her face so that she couldn't see any details of his face and then stabbed at her with the tip of an umbrella that he had picked up from outside her room. Uh, Carmel tried to get away by throwing the blankets um, at Cook to distract him while she ran out of the bed. Cook tried to punch her and hit her in the cheek, but Carmel, Carmel's like a tough bitch. She was like, they described her as being like a five foot 10 country girl. And like, she did not fall down. She was like, no, no punch can. (laughs) Exactly. No punch can fell me. So she kept on running away and Cook was like, okay, I fucked it and ran out of the house. So Carmel ran into her housemate Trisha's room screaming and the neighbors heard all the commotion and came over to help. And then they called the police and the police were like, oh my God, not again. Um, But they were like, praise Jesus, you're alive. But again, somebody had just broken in. There was no evidence, no fingerprints, no description of the person, nothing to go on, nothing. So about two months after that was Cook's next and thankfully his last murder. But it was something that – this is, this, is, this is straight out of a horror movie. Like, if this happened at the start of a horror movie, you would be like, this is unrealistic. So it was the 10th of August, 1963. Shirley MacLeod was a science student at the University of Western Australia, and in order to support herself while she was studying, she had taken up babysitting. So she was in this house babysitting a little eight-month-old Mitchell Dowd while his parents were out on a literal dark and stormy night. Like, it was, like, blowing a gale, storm, thunder, big old house in the middle of the night. Like, honestly, the start of every horror movie you've ever watched. So she was sitting on the couch in the lounge room of the dad's house studying when Eric Edgar Cook entered, and he had had a big evening. So he had driven around the suburbs of Perth in his own car for part of the night, and he went to a whole bunch of places, including Cottesloe, which was – tantalizingly close to where he'd committed the Australia Day shootings. He then broke into a house at 17 Pierce Street. There was a woman sitting on the couch, but he was starting to enjoy the risk of being seen. So he crept through the house looking for money when he came across a twenty-two caliber rifle. He left the house thrilled with his find and started driving around in search of a location that would provide him with a victim. He parked his car on Carroll Street in Dolkeith. Luckily for him, a woman... St- ran out of a house in, in the nearby street into the park across the road. He took aim with a rifle, following her as she ran and waiting for her to stop so he could shoot. But when she did stop, um, she was standing slightly behind a tree, obscuring her from view. Frustrated, Cook lowered the gun and moved on. Bernice Rogers had ran out of her house in order to chase after her dog who had gotten loose, but she had made a narrow escape. Cook headed down towards the river, ending up at a house on Menorah Road. He entered the house, and there he saw Shirley MacLeod sitting on the lounge room from the hallway. Her head was down so she couldn't see him. He took aim and fired a single shot into Shirley's head. When the Dowds returned home around 2am, they assumed that Shirley had fallen asleep sitting up on the sofa while studying. Carl Dowd went went over to wake her up and noticed that she was covered in blood. Her hand was still holding her pen, and she was literally mid-sentence, like on her notes. Like, her sentence had just stopped. So Carl initially and also very understandably thought that the killer was still inside the house. So he ran up to the bedroom where his wife and child were and like locked the door and they waited in there for a period of time until Carl thought it was safe to go and call the police. So the subsequent investigation into Shirley McLeod's murder was massive. And although there was not like evidence, you would say, to link it to the Australia Day shootings, The fact that it was a really similar sort of crime – it was very similar actually to the murder of George – the last Australia Day shooting victim, um, George Walmsley, like when he just like knocked on the door and like shot the guy in the head with the rifle. It was really similar, and it was in a nearby neighborhood, so they were like, okay, it's not definitely the guy, but it's probably the guy. Yeah. So, 50 detectives worked 12-hour-a-day shifts canvassing the neighborhood and interviewing more than 8,000 people. Um, And this crime scene, unlike any of the others, had some evidence, which was a fingerprint. So every person who had been in the dad's house in previous months was fingerprinted, but there was no matches, which was good because, you know, this kind of led more credence to the police's theory that I was the Australia Day shooter. Yeah, But obviously bad because no matches means that they're not found, but anyway, you understand. So detectives were working on going through people and finding a match for the fingerprint as well as searching for the cartridge from the bullet. So, like, obviously, you know, with a rifle, like, you do that, you know, the thing they do in the movies where they go chook-chook and the cartridge falls out? Yeah. Obviously, because he'd shot her with the thing, like, that would have happened. But um, because, you know, Cook had left a cartridge behind at the Australia Day shootings, which he knew the police had found, so he had actually taken the cartridge with him after Shirley MacLowd's shooting. Um. So, on the 16th of August, 1963, an elderly couple called Mr. and Mrs. Keener were out for a lovely afternoon walk in the suburb of Mount Pleasant. Mrs. Keener stopped to pick some flowers from a bush on the side of the road, and to her surprise, she found a rifle stashed underneath the bush. The couple left the rifle where it was, returned home, and called the police. They just reported it to the local station and were like, hey, we found a rifle. Anyway, maybe you boys want to check it out. Good for them for not touching it, though. Yeah, well, they didn't. Yeah, they just left it where it was. I think they did touch it, but they didn't take it. Oh, okay. Um, don't touch it. If you find something, don't touch it. Don't touch rifles, kids.
1: Don't touch anything. If you see something <laughs> and you think it's a bit weird, don't touch it. I just just don't, don't touch it. Just don't touch it. Hedge your bets. Um, Hedge your bets so, head your bets and don't touch it.
0: <laughs> don't touch the rifle. So they were like, nothing's ever going to be done about this. And then, like, five minutes later, all these police were at their door being like, hello, Mr. and Mrs., where's the gun? So they <laughs> took the police to the gun. And the police were like, "Oh, oh boy, oh boy! I don't want to get my hopes up, but this could really be it, boys." Um, so they took the gun, they took it back to the CIB, and they analyzed the bullet that was removed from Shirley McLeod's forehead. Um, they, there was one bullet left in the rifle, so they fired it and they compared it to the bullet from Shirley McLeod,
1: and, and it, was it was a match. match.
0: Same firing print impressions and all that. The Tinder jazz. It's a Match screen came up. The Tinder <laughs> It's a Match screen came up. <laughs> the two bullets going, it's a match. It's a match. That's how I assume I've watched a lot of like, you know, CSI, C- you know, CSI and stuff like that. So that's what I assume all of that technology looks like. You know how they always do like the looking for DNA match, DNA match found like and computer like screens that are so.
1: Like the scrolling thing and everything.
0: Exactly. I'm like, that's not how those things look. I don't know how they do look, but I know it's not like that. So we know. So it was a match. So the police thought that because the gun had been stashed in such like a random faraway place that it was likely that the killer was going to return to collect it. So they set a trap. They put the gun back in the bush and they kept it secured in place with fishing line. And they then set up a lookout at the house across the road from the bush, which was monitored 24 hours a day. Thankfully, they didn't have to wait too long for the trap to be sprung. So, on the 31st of August, Cook had been prowling in the neighbourhood of Peppermint Grove, which is the kind of well-to-do neighbourhood that he favoured. He was killing time, waiting until the street lights in Mount Pleasant switched off around 1.15am so he could retrieve the rifle. Unusually for Cook, he was driving his own car, a Holden sedan. He drove down Rookwood Street and parked directly opposite the bush, which put the detective on lookout, Constable Bill Hawker, immediately into suspicions he was like no there is no reason for anybody to be parked across the road from this bush at this time of night apart from one reason so his partner constable skian was having a little nap in a tent next door but hawker was like this is it man they had hypothesized that the killer would come back around this time they were like look if he's going to come back he's going to wait until the lights went off so at first he was like yes my theory was right and the second was like oh my god this guy is a murderer so detective hawker like watched as the man opened the he opened the door of the car really slowly and then he got out really slowly and like stood in the doorway and like looked around and was like real cautious and then um constable hawker was like hey hey man wake up like this is this is the this dude it's is all it. happening and in the time that it took for him to wake up um constable skian the man had crossed over to the bush and was, like, retrieving the gun. So Hawker literally, like, cool police moment, like, leapt over the fence um, with his partner, like, not far behind, but probably, like, a little bit tired and confused of what was going on. And he grabbed the man from behind, and he um, put one handcuff on Cook's wrist and the other on the fence so there was no way for Cook to escape. And he was like, yeah, boy, he's found. So he noticed, like, he put the handcuffs on – he put the handcuffs on the man who he didn't know was cook yet, but we all know that it was. So there's no point pretending. Um, and he like put the handcuffs on and was like, man, this guy has extremely soft hands. Why does this guy have such soft hands? And also why is he mumbling to himself? But was like, you know, whatever killers are weird. And then he went into the house where the lookout, lookout was set up to call the police because he didn't want to risk putting it over the police radio and like having every single person, You know every patrol car in the nearby radius like zooming on in this place so he went to call the police to try and keep it secret and then hawker returned to where cook was and noticed all the weird things about cook that made him stand out so like his cleft lip which made sense as to why he was mumbling to himself um his white silk women's gloves which explained why his hands were really really like weirdly soft (sighs) He also searched Cook and in his pockets of his overcoat was a pair of women's underwear and a newspaper column with information about a wedding on that day underlined and a dress written over the top. So the reinforcements come, Cook is picking up and taking back to CIB headquarters and, like, every single Perth, every single police officer in Perth was, like, also headed there. Like, this was, like, the capture of the century. Why do I feel century. like this isn't going to end very well? Well... Look, right we're an hour in, and we've got still a fair bit to go. No. <laughs> it doesn't end badly. Like, he gets hanged. Okay, keep we going. We already knew that from the beginning. Keep going. That's the thing. I know that he's going to get
1: caught, but I just need for people to stop being killed. Do you get
0: me? I get ya. I feel ya. So, Cook. Cook had been arrested before. He was pretty familiar with cops. He knew some of the people that were there. And he was also very, like... And they're like, oh, it's Johnny Soft Hands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were like, hey, Johnny Soft Hands, how you doing? They actually all called him Cookie. That's right, like, Cookie. Like, his nickname was Cookie, and all the cops called him Cookie. But, you know, C- Cookie was kind of in his, like, element. So he's like, chatty. And he was, like, bragging about all the houses that he'd broken into that night and, like, telling all the cops, like, oh, yeah, I went over to, like, 15 Scott Street and I stole 10 pounds from that guy. And the cops are like, hello, you were being arrested on suspicion of murder. And he was like, and then I stole five pounds from this other guy. And they're like, cool story, bro, but, like, the the murder is why we're here. So he's being super chatty about all these petty crimes, dead silent about the serious ones. He, um denied any knowledge or involvement in Shirley MacLeod's murder. He had told police that he had also, like, been out, you know, strolling about. He actually told police that he had found the gun when, like, under the bush when he would parked his van on the street to, like, adjust the van's suspension or something like that. And then, like, in the, in the books that I read, they were like, but then the police were like, that's ridiculous. Why would you park your van and do that on top of a hill? And i didn't understand why that was weird so i didn't include in the episode but now i'm including it anyway um so he was like he said that he just happened to see it there when he was doing whatever with his van and he wanted to come back and take it so he could sell it and the police were like that story doesn't check out eric and he was like anyway did you want to hear any more tales about all the houses i've robbed So he was questioned pretty extensively, but they weren't really getting anywhere. So they decided to bring in Sergeant Gordon Mormon to question Cook as he had been dealing with Cook literally since Cook had stolen the money box from the South Perth Methodist Church, however many years prior. And they had that kind of like policeman criminal relationship where like Mormon was like, you're a crook, but I respect you. You know, that kind of like Don't respect this guy, please. Put him so away. they just thought They just thought he was like a petty criminal. They just thought he was like old, you know, Johnny Steal Two Pennies. Not that he was like literally the most evil person that maybe has ever walked the earth apart from Hitler. But anyway, so they got Mormon and this other cop who was really familiar with Cook called Detective Barker to come in and talk to Eric. And they knew that with Eric, like sit back, let him talk, let him brag. Eventually you'll tell you what you need to know but Cook was like not as chatty as he usually was but he he knew that you know if he confessed to this crime he was he was done for so the next move was for the detectives to go to Cook's home so Cook had told police that on the night of Shelley McLeod's murder he'd gone to the bowling alley around 8 p.m and then gone straight home his wife Sally who was used to detectives at the door due to Cook's petty thefts was not really expecting the police to be there investigating a murder and when she was questioned sally told the truth that cook had not come home until incredibly late at night she gave a written statement to that effect to the police which was shown to cook back at cib headquarters and cook was like no man my sally would never say that she has my back like she's my woman there's no way you've made this up so they're like okay we'll bring sally in so they brought sally in and he was like Sally, did you tell them that? And Sally was like, yeah, I did. And she was like, he was like, why did you do that? And she said, because it's the truth, Eric, and you know it. So while all the interrogations were ongoing, a scientific team was examining Cook's Holden sedan, where they found an empty 22 caliber cartridge case. It was immediately sent to the lab and ballistics tests were done that eventually confirmed that the cartridge came from the rifle that had killed Shirley McLeod. So, when this news was brought back to Cook in interrogation, he finally was like, Okay, the jig is up. You got me. I've done it. So, he wrote out a statement confessing to the murder, but he claimed to have suffered a partial blackout at the time. But (laughs) those details didn't really matter. He'd confessed. Eric Cook was then charged with willful murder, and his reign of terror on the city of Perth had finally come to an end. Thank God. Thank God. So it was absolutely massive front page news, and Cook's face was all over the newspaper. And like, every person that knew him, like, everybody was like, he was like a, you know, he was weird, but he was a bit of like a, nobody expected him of all people. Like, this weird little man who like, you know, was kind of like weird and like off putting. They didn't expect him to be like a heinous, heinous murderer. So people were really shocked to find out that was him. Um. And although the arrest for the murder was a triumph, there was still a lot more police work to be done. He was continu- he was interrogated again at the CIB in connection to the Australia Day murders, and he was driven around the western suburbs where they had occurred. Cook would tell police, like, insane levels of details about robberies he'd committed, like what day it was, how much money he'd... T- like, he would be like, Oh, yeah, on August 11th, 1962, I broke into that house and stole 17 pounds from a brown handbag that was on the kitchen table. Like, he could remember just everything he'd ever done. So that's the level of detail he was giving the police about these robberies, but he did not give any information about the shootings. But um, Barker and Mormon had noticed that Cook had reacted badly, like when they'd driven past the houses where the Australia Day shootings had occurred. So they're driving him all around. They all go to the pub for lunch, because why not? And while they're there eating lunch, Barker says to Cook, basically like, look, you are going to go to jail for hanging you are going to go to jail and you're going to be hanged anyway because of the murder you've committed. You can either die a coward for the way you shot these people, or you can man up and admit responsibility. And Cook was like, good argument. Don't want to be a coward. I'll confess. So they went around again, the the route that Cook took during the Australia Day shootings, this time with Cook giving his usual amount of exhaustive detail um, about the murders and with the police photographer there to record cook at the crime scenes now that he confessed cook was ready and even like a little bit keen to tell the police about what he'd done like he was not proud but he was kind of like he was a bit excited to like be talking about it which is fucked and as i said insanely good memory like his level of detail was excessive so he could remember the number of the light pole that he was standing next to when he, like, threw the rifle from the Australia Day shootings into the river, which is extremely handy when the police dive team had to go into the river. So what they did is they stood next to the light pole, tossed in a rifle that was, like, the same as the one that he'd used and, like, just looked where it landed and managed to find the murder weapon that way. And so when um, the police asked Cook why he'd committed the crimes, Cook responded, I just wanted to hurt somebody. After the tour just was done. Somebody killed yeah, so Mint Exactly. So after the tour was done, Cook was taken back to the CIB, and with his wife and all of the detectives present, he wrote out confessions detailing each of the Australia Day shootings. He then faced the magistrate the next day to be remanded for the rest of the crimes, and the magistrate was actually John the father of John Sturkeys, who was one of the Australia Day victims. So he's the father of John Sturkey's girlfriend. So this magistrate had seen like his daughter be absolutely devastated, you know, after her boyfriend was murdered, and he was the person who got to like remand Cook, you know, while Like the not judging, pending. but isn't that a bit of a conflict of interest? But it's Perth in nineteen sixty three, and I think there's like a two hundred thousand people in the entire town. Yeah, fair enough. So it's like, you know, if your magistrate's not your murder victim's girlfriend's father, then it's probably, like, your other murder victim's girlfriend's cousin or something like that. Yeah, right, okay. So after he was remanded, Cook started giving a lot more details about various crimes he'd committed, including all of those assaults on women that I detailed that had not escalated into murders, like the attack on Molly McLeod and Alex Donkin. So after he confessed all those assaults, the police were like, anything else you'd like to run up to, Cook? And he was like, oh, yeah, actually, there are two people in jail for crimes that I committed. And the police were like, I'm sorry? And Cook's like, yeah, I killed Gillian Brewer and Rosemary Anderson. And the police were like, come again? And Cook was like, a man named John Button has been sentenced to 10 years in prison for running down his girlfriend, Rosemary Anderson, which is a crime that I committed. And the police were like, you know what? It's been a long day. Let's all go to bed <laughs> and we're going to deal with this problem in the morning. So the next morning, they picked Cook up from a cell and they went to the scene of Rosemary Anderson's murder at Stubbs Terrace. So again, Cook told the police in minute detail about the attack, including how fast he'd been going, where precisely her body had hit the car, like where, on the, where literally on the bonnet on her the body bonnet. had hit. Um, and the story about how he crashed his car into the tree after the crime, and they went to King's Park, and he, like, pointed to the tree that it was, that he'd, like, crashed the car into. Like, insane levels of detail. Um, so the next day, they went back to the site, this time with Detective Deering, who you'll remember was in charge of the investigation to John Button. Mm. Um, and then a police photographer recorded Cook marking out precisely where he had hit Rosemary with the car. Then he was taken back to the CIB to write out a full confession. So the police... Here's the thing. The police had already put somebody in jail for this crime. So they they investigated, and they found, like some, consist, like, some things were true about Cook's statement. Like, he'd said that he'd stole... Like, the particular car that he'd used had stolen, and they'd found a, like, report saying that the car had indeed been stolen. They were like, hmm, that tracks. But they were like, but he can't... They... <laughs> They were basically like, the crime kind of happened the way you say it did because the way it happened was the way that they said that it happened in John Button's trial and John Button went to prison for it. And Cook was like, but I did do it. I'm telling, I'm telling you, I you that I did it. And it didn't happen that way because I did it. And they're like, well, you can't have because it happened like this. That's what the established facts are. And John And Eric Cook is like... Well, they aren't the established facts because I committed the crime and I established the facts because I'm the one that did it. So the police were like, no, 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 you've been mistaken. Please retract your confession. So he did retract his confession and wrote out another confession that was like, it appears that I have been mistaken about murdering Rosemary Anderson, a crime that I was pretty sure that I did, but I suppose I was wrong. And then the day after that, basically the same thing happened with the Gillian Brewer murders. So he'd written a confession and then he was forced to retract it by the police. So, like, like we all know that the police just didn't want to admit that they were wrong. Mm. But, like, also he deaf did it. Anyway, so after this confession, no confession incident, um, the Eric Cook's Unsold Crimes of Perth tour continued, um, where he finally confessed to the police about the series of hit-and-runs. This was the first time the police were hearing about any of these hit-and-runs. Like, not the first time because they have been investigated, but they were like, oh my god, he also committed the hit-and-runs? Like, when is this guy going to let the fuck up? So he gave a written statement confessing to the hit-and-run attacks on Georgina Pittman and Maureen Rogers, Jill Connell, Kathy Bellis, and Nell Snyder, all of which were investigated and determined to have been... Eric Cook's fault and the case files were closed and the public was never told about it. They, like, told that, like, went to the victims' houses and were like, hey, we found the guy that hit and ran you. It was Eric Cook, the Australia Day shooter. And the people were like, oh, my God, what the fuck? And then there was no media coverage of it at all. For whatever reason, they just didn't tell anybody about the hit and runs.
1: Okay. So,
0: (sighs) finally, Cook is set to stand trial in November and in one of those... The magistrate is the father of my victim's ex-girlfriend. Moments. The pros- the defense attorney who was assigned to Eric Cook was Ken Hatfield, who was John Button's attorney.
1: Oh my god!
0: Yeah, I know. It, like
1: the, how? I guess just... he's a defense lawyer, so and I it's know. a small town, but
0: exactly. So in over the course of several days in September of 1963, both Ken Hatfield and his off-sider Des Heenan questioned Cook extensively in order to get the account of the crimes from the horse's mouth, basically. And they, too, were stunned by the level of detail that Cook was able to provide about the crimes. So he'd stuck to his initial story that he gave police about suffering a partial blackout when he committed the murder of Shelley McLeod. But he surprised and probably greatly upset his counsel when he confessed to yet more crimes the murders of Penina Berkman and Lucy Madrill. So he confessed to those crimes, he confessed again to his lawyers about the murders of Rosemary Anderson and Jill Brewer, saying that the police hadn't believed him and he'd retracted his confession but he was 100% definitely the person who had committed the murders. Um, Ken Hatfield was like, oh my god, yes, I knew John Button was innocent. I knew I had all of that right. But oh my god, this guy has killed so many people. What the fuck is wrong with him? Um, A lot. A lot. So Cook was charged also with Lucy Madrill and Penina Berkman's murders, but the police would not budge on Rosemary Anderson and Gillian Brewer, no matter how many times Cook confessed. They refused to make Cook's confessions available to the defense team up until two days before his trial was set to begin. So, Cook was only being tried for one murder, which was the murder of John Lindsay Sturkey, one of the Australia Day victims. And Cook pled not guilty to the murder, but it wasn't really pleading not guilty. So, it wasn't a case of whether or not he had done it. He had definitely done it and he'd confessed to it. But it was a case of whether or not Cook was sane enough to be considered responsible. Yeah, exactly. So, prior psychiatric assessment had indicated that Cook was probably indeed normal, other than being a murderer, and that he'd had a concept of right and wrong. But the defense still did their best to detail the violence that Cook had experienced in his early life at the hands of his father, the many accidents and ailments and hospital trips that he had incurred in his youth, and any other potentially mitigating factors that could save Cook from death row. On day two of the trial, Cook himself was questioned. He told the court about the feeling that he got, that power of God that took over him and made him feel like he needed to kill. He said that the feeling came over him when he saw Nicholas August and Rowena Reeves seated in the car on Australia Day and only left him after he'd shot George Walmsley. He said to the court that he did not feel as though the people that he had killed were people in the real sense of the word. He said that he was unable to stop himself from committing the crimes and that he was completely unable to overcome the power. The psychiatrist called by the defense, Dr. Jones, said that it was difficult to determine whether or not Cook was suffering from something like schizophrenia, which was a mental illness and therefore would render him not responsible for his actions, or if he had experienced a psychopathic state, which would not. Dr. Ellis, who was called by the state, said that he did not believe that Cook was suffering from any mental disease, and I gotta go with Dr. Ellis on this one. I think he is sane, but crazy. Sane, but... (laughs) There's a couple of wires crossed. (laughs) A couple of hours crossed. Only a crazy person could do what he did, but also he was sane. So he was the next lucid. He knew what he was, was doing. He lucid. He knew what he was doing, and he wanted to do it. That's that's what happened. That's the crazy bit. That's the crazy bit. <laughs> so the next day, the jury took just one hour to decide Cook's fate, and surprise, to basically nobody's surprise, they found him guilty for the murder of John Sturkey. The excellently named Justice Virtue placed a black cloth cloth on Cook's head and said that he was to be sentenced to death. So, because he was going to hang for John's murder, there basically wasn't really any point in trying him for them? all the other ones, but he was like, yeah, like, everybody's like, yeah, he, di- he def did he it.
1: Did. He defs did it.
0: Yeah, so he definitely did all the Australia Day ones, and they held inquests into the murders of Penina Berkman, Lucy Madrill, and Shelly MacLeod, just to, like, close, close the case, basically, so they weren't unsolved. So, Cook had decided that he would not appeal his conviction, which is pretty rare in like death row cases like they always go to appeal but he was like don't bother i did it he was kind of like (sighs) i don't want to like give him props or anything like that but he was like he was like i committed these crimes and i deserve to be punished for it like he was surprisingly like cool about the whole thing Mm. um so because there was no need to gear up an appeal for cook hatfield and heenan started getting work on started work on getting john button and daryl beamish out of prison so Cook said that he wanted to clear his conscience about the murders before he was executed. So he gave uh, written, con- new, fresh written confessions to both murders, which were witnessed by pa- Bart Calculus, who was part of the John Button's original defense team, as well as the Justice of the Peace. So, in contrast to the confession that John Button had written, Cook's was long and full of details. He recalled things that only the killer could have possibly known, like the handbag that Rosemary was carrying at the time. It seemed like, like based on the strength of his confession and how much it gelled with, like you know, the kinds of injuries that Rosemary had suffered and things like that, the the team was like, this is gonna be a slam fucking dunk. They were like, we've got this in the bag. We've got this hook line and sink of baby. Like it is happening. So um, a hearing was set up to see if John Button as well as Daryl Beamish could get new trials. So they had that hearing, first hearing in February of nineteen sixty four, and then john's then they had john in march and daryl in april i believe so the legal proceedings would end up putting cook's execution off a bit which he was like weirdly not happy about like he was kind of like ugh, like oh like i don't want to die but also i don't really want to be like in prison and he was also terrified that john button and daryl beamish were gonna somehow like get revenge like on his family like he kept on saying to bart like oh my god, John Button is going to, like, come and, like, kill my family and shit like that. And Bart was like, that's not good. One, he's in prison, so he couldn't even do anything if he wanted to. And two, like, you're the murderer, not him. Like, your family is fine. So despite the defense's confidence, the appeals for Beamish and Button did not go great. So Cook was extensively questioned at Button's appeal, particularly about, like, why he confessed and then retracted and then confessed again. Um so he'd admitted he admitted when he was questioned to making up some details in the confessions and like not not telling anybody about it. And his defense for it was like he knew that the police thought he was lying so there was no point in not lying. Mm. So like that like, you can see the logic to it, but he was like, look, I'm telling the truth now. like yeah, I lied back then, but this is definitely 100% the truth. I definitely did it. I don't want these people to be in jail for a crime that I committed. I did it. I'm the scoundrel. Let these people go, but not that nobly. No. Um, so okay. he said he said that he'd confessed again to clear his conscience and to help John Button out. But Wilson put it that Cook was just trying to help himself out by delaying his execution. So Hatfield then questioned Cook about the five other hit and runs he'd committed, basically to draw comparisons between those attacks, which he had definitely, as I said, like been found guilty of, essentially, and the murder of Rosemary Anderson to like establish a pattern of behavior, essentially. Right. But in confessing and then retracting, Cook had made himself untrustworthy in the eyes of the court. His confessions were not sufficient evidence to call retrials for Beamish and Button, and their appeals were dismissed. Cook was considered a liar and a big noter who would confess to anything if it got him a bit of infamy. After the appeal was dismissed, they then went to the High Court of Australia, but that appeal was also dismissed for both of them. And at that point, there was nothing else to be done. Button and Beamish remained in prison, and it was time for Eric Edgar Cook to, to finally be hanged. So the date I've of his... I ex- said
1: thank God <sighs> about capital punishment, but
0: thank... God, I know. Cases like this really make me rethink my, like, bleeding heart lefty, no capital punishment stand, you know?
1: Bleeding heart lefty.
0: So the date of his execution would be set for October 26, 1964, and Cook, he was ready for it. He was like, yeah, okay. There was a news item on the radio that was like – that, like – he should be retried for the crime and there there would be a a stay of execution and cook was like if that happens i will just kill myself he was like that i'm he was done he's ready to go so three days before his execution cook was talking to the reverend jenkins who was like his spiritual advisor in these times um and he told jenkins that there was only one thing left on his conscience that two men were still in prison for crimes crimes that he had committed He took the Bible from Jenkins' hands and swore on it that he had committed the two murders. So there'd been like a bit of publicity about all of this and it had mostly died in Button's case, but in Daryl Beamish's case, as I mentioned before, like Daryl was like deaf and mute. There was, there was a little bit of like, you know, there's a little bit of like discrimination stuff as well as the whole wrongful conviction thing. So there was still a little bit of traction left on this and there was an attempt in Parliament to prevent Cook's execution in case Beamish could possibly get a retrial. Um, But that ended up – this was, like, literally, like, on, like, the day before, like, on October 25th. They were like, quickly, stop this man from being executed. This guy might get a retrial. And they were like, no, 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 let's just do it. So there was nothing left to delay the inevitable. Cook woke up bright and early at 5.45 a.m. on 26th of October 1964. Officers arrived at 6am to begin the proceedings. He was taken to the shower, given a fresh new set of prison khakis to wear for the big day and taken to the holding cell just behind the gallows. He waited there for 90 minutes, chatting lightly with the guards and with Reverend Jenkins and another clergyman. At 7.45am, just before it was time to go, Cook said again to Reverend Jenkins, I swear before almighty God that I killed Anderson and Brewer. Then the executioner arrived to take Cook to the gallows. A white hood was placed over Cook's head, with a little flap left open so he could see where he was going. He was led to the gallows, the noose was placed around his neck, and the hood was pulled down over his eyes. The hangman pulled the lever, the trapdoor released, and it was all over in less than a minute. Cook was dead. A small funeral sparsely attended by Reverend Jenkins, prison people, and the grave digger, was held. Cook was lowered into the grave that had been dug decades previously for Martha Rendell. Reverend Jenkins later went to visit Sally Cook to tell her about the funeral because she was not told that it happened, which I found a little bit questionable, and to tell her that Cook's last words had been to confess to the murders of Rosemary Anderson and Gillian Brewer. So that is Edgar Cook done and gone, but there are still two people in prison for his crimes. Parole wouldn't be invented in Western Australia until 1965, and John Button was one of the early parolees, being released on the 20th of December 1967. So he got part of his life back. He started kind of, you know, picking up his old hobbies and things like that. He got a job and eventually got married, but it took him a long time to fully recover from his ordeal. A near-death experience after a car accident in 1977 led John to discover Christianity and he eventually came to believe that everything that had happened to him had happened because it was part of God's plan. More than so... I wish I
1: had that faith. Like, right? (laughs) Like, I wish I could look at the shit things that happened this year and just being like, you know what? It's all for a reason. I wish. you know what? I wish. I wish I felt like that, but you know Mm
0: what? Fuck that. Maybe you just need to be wrongly convicted of murder and then you'll believe in God's plan. Maybe, and then I'll be like,
1: oh, and all these bin were not for naught. It's okay. It's all part of God's plan, baby. It's all part of God's plan that I feel this incredibly low self-esteem. No worries. (laughs) Not to make this crime all about
0: us, but also. (laughs) But also we're going through trauma anyway. So I purposely left this information until this point in the episode. We're also nearly done now. Everybody can start. I don't know turning their cars off or start whatever. Start wrapping up. Start start wrapping up. So the book – Start packing up. For all – like, to, to an extent that I don't usually do, I relied basically just on one source for this episode, which was the book Broken Lives, written by Estelle Blackburn. And this book literally, like, you know, people talk a lot of shit about, like, the true tri- crime genre and stuff like that, but, like, if it wasn't for this book, none of the things that I'm about to tell you would have ever happened. Like, this woman, Estelle Blackburn – like amazingly smart woman terrific rider like champion for justice wrote this book and it completely it was released in 1998 and it completely changed everything for these two people like both both button and beamish were out of prison at this point in time but they had still like they were still convicted killers like they still had that black mark on their record they could still like you know never get like the jobs that you can only get if you haven't been to prison and stuff like that so she wrote this book and it was like it was a really big hit and Um, a member of I think a member of I can't remember the full story now which is bad research but member of parliament I think read the book and then entered like a an uh, urgent urgent motion urgency motion something like that um, to get a new appeal for John Button this is in like the year 2000 like like 40 years after everything had gone down all because this woman wrote this book and like this massive miscarriage of justice was finally exposed to everybody so they passed the motion um he was granted john Bun was granted a new appeal in 1998 and daryl beamish was granted one in 2000 and there was a rather long period of like researching and fact checking and stuff like that to like make sure that like they fucking like we're gonna nail this shit you know what i mean
1: yeah
0: so they got a like a car crash reconstructionist from america to like come down and like used the same model car and he like crashed into all these like dummies and stuff like that to demonstrate that the kind of damage that would have been sustained had john's car been used to kill rosemary anderson so appeal goes they've got all this great evidence john testifies car crash reconstructionist in february of 2002 um the court of appeal finally gave their verdict so based on the Based on the strength of the car crash reconstruction um, and the evidence of four four of Cook's surviving hit-and-run victims, in conjunction with the fact that Cook always maintained his guilt for Rosemary Anderson's death and that John had always maintained his innocence, the court found that there had been a miscarriage of justice and that Button's conviction would be quashed. Daryl Beamish would get his day in court in 2004, with the Court of Appeal similarly quashing his conviction in April of 2005. In June of, like, 2005. He went to prison in 1961. Like, 1961. He was 64 years old when the conviction was quashed. Like, that's just your whole life, you know? Your whole life people think you're guilty of this crime. Anyway, in June of 2011, Beamish was granted a $425,000 payout from the West Australian government with the government's sincere apologies and the hope that the money would help him have a comfortable retirement, which was the literal words they used. Um, after John Button was found to have not done the crime, Rosemary Anderson's family took a fair while to kind of come to terms with the fact that John was innocent. So immediately after the conviction, the family maintained that Cook wasn't responsible for their daughter's death and that John was responsible. And it took a meeting with John Button and Eric Cook's remaining family organized by Australian Story and then another meeting with the WA Director of Public Prosecutions for them to fully accept John's innocent, innocence. And now John is the head of the Western Australian Innocence Project, which, as we know, fights for wrongly convicted people. John. Like, God's plan was real. Like... Not, like, I don't believe in that man, but, like, God's plan fucking worked for John. You know, he has really done some good shit with this horrible hand of cards that he's been dealt. And that's the end of the story. I am
1: exhausted, so I don't know how the fuck you've done that. Um, holy fucking shit. Every time, like I've ta- I've spoken to people about this case, because like, oh, well, like you know, what are you doing at the moment? And I'm like, oh, well, Ellen's doing like a two parter on Eric Edgar Cook, and everyone's like, who's that? And I'm like, literally, you don't want to know. You don't like, want to know. Like, you don't want to fucking know, because like this is honestly the most messed up thing that I have ever heard of. And I think the reason why I'm like so fucked up by it is because like there's no mo, mm-hmm. like like. He repeats a few times, but,
0: like, he crosses over so much, and it's so scary. It just does not fit in with the narrative that we've established for, like, serial killers in particular, that there's, like, you know, like the they Ted Bundy, like, like, you know, mm. we he killed co-eds with long straight brown hair, and he did it in this way. Like, it's this like dude's just, like... anybody with anything. For the, sh- the, for the shits and giggles, because he literally yeah. wanted to. And, it's, I mean, we've said that before.
1: It's, like, there's no reason... For anyone to kill anybody, other than the fact that they want to.
0: Yeah.
1: When you talk I mean, about these people, like it's for sure. just. Oh, I'm so fucked up by this case. I really am. Yeah, I can't I, believe I'd never heard of it. I've I my dad. Either. Like I was like, yeah, Eric Edgar Cook, and my dad was like, who? I was like, fuck. Okay.
0: It is just. It's just so wild. Like it's just. It's just you know. I read the book and I did all the other reading and, like, everything like that. And I just still can't wrap my head around it fully. Like, there are still so many things that, you know, and I left so much shit out. You guys have no idea. You always say that. You – but you have – like, there is no – this could have been – I was worried that it was going to be three parts. I was really worried that it was going to be three parts. There are, like – there are, like, serious crimes, like, assaults and stuff that he committed that I didn't mention because I was like, this is getting to be too much. People can't listen to this. Just some dude, like, beating women over the head while they sleep over and over again. Like, I really recommend reading the book. It is exhaustively detailed, and I mean exhaustively detailed. Like, I can't imagine – having written it and I just need to give like I don't want anybody to think that like you know sometimes we do like do like original research or like primary source research and you know go through case files and stuff like that this I did not do that in this thing like that you know Estelle Blackburn
1: you would have been doing it for about four like five months it would have taken
0: my entire life like it would have taken my entire life but you know it's such a massive story and for Estelle Blackburn to kind of you know do all the research she did and all the work that she did. I am just so in awe of that level of, like, I could never. I could never. It was amazing. And, you know, as I said before, I think that's why even though as a genre true crime is rightfully, I think, criticized for being a bit exploitive and, you know, things like that, it, you know, and I'm not saying that our show is doing this at all because I'm not a narcissist, but. it it, that kind of research does have the power to really affect change and I think we've seen that a few times over the course of history that you know sometimes all it takes is somebody putting a spotlight on a case that would have otherwise been forgotten and you know the real details can come to light and justice can be found for people even if it's 50 years after the crime occurred like it's just you know for for John Button and Daryl Beamish like the fact that that book was written was fucking life-changing you know and good good job Estelle yeah wow. glad to ride on your coattails for a little bit thanks hon thanks hon love your work
1: okay um yeah well thank you so much Ellen for all your hard work like that was not easy in any sense of the word so good job Cheers. Um, once again, if you want to get in contact, feel free to email us at murderandlandavoz at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. We've gotten lots of lovely messages from people. Um, thank you all so much for helping us get to
0: 10,000 subscribers. Very exciting. We're going to do a Christmas special. Yes, we are. Just so everybody knows, there'll be Christmas themed content.
1: Christmas. Um, if you want to become a Patreon, sign up. You can hear about the Claremont killings that I'll be covering and also Mitlu After Dark. Fun, fun, fun. And all the other episodes we have up there. And all the other episodes that we've got on there that is f- – like, that's the thing. When you sign up for Patreon, just because you're a new Patreon doesn't mean that you miss out on, like, all of the old content. Like, all of that is upload. It's it's all there for your um, enjoyment when you're ready. Um, yeah. Honestly, like, I – like we both have had like on like personal level like really rough years um and I have been struggling to sort of feel grateful about a lot of a lot of the aspects of my life um at the moment but I have to say that this is a really positive thing in my life this podcast I mean not only does it keep me in touch with Ellen at least every fortnight not that we don't have hour-long chats
0: on the phone Um, basically every other day
1: (laughs) yeah but um doing this and like you know even though this is a lot of hard work like for both of us like doing this podcast has been an absolute joy this year and you know talking to so many of you and having you guys interact with us is really special and yeah so I like on a personal level I can personally say that like this has been like an absolute joy this year in the midst of some really really hard times so thank you guys so much I second that um cool well uh we're gonna do some midlu after dark content that's gonna be on the patreon so you should sign up just saying <laughs> um, but we will see you in two, two weeks. weeks for the start of our northern territory season we'll have christmas first and then northern territory christmas then northern territory i beg your pardon um so yeah we'll see you soon for our christmas special and we'll see you guys bye, bye. bye. Let's talk about X baby.
0: Ah, uh, crappy relationships, the bane of our collective existence. But what do we learn from our mistakes?
1: I'm relationship columnist Liz Bess.
0: And I'm funny guy Tom Harris.
1: Ghosts of Boyfriends Past will chat to guests about love gone wrong and take you on a journey through the funny, tragic, horrifying... And
0: sometimes just plain bonkers stories about that crazy little thing called love. It's like a group therapy session.
1: With two people completely unqualified to be leading it. New episodes drop fortnightly on Thursdays, so join in to hear tales of heartbreak and woe and hopefully wind up a little wiser or dry. For it. That's not Gunner Productions podcast. Forward. It's the one move we're all ready to take. And at the Audi Moving Forward sales event, we're ready to help you on that journey. All Audi dealerships are now open with tailored solutions to suit your individual needs, like the Audi A6 saloon with PCP finance from only €499 per month. Now is the time to make an appointment. Now is the time to start moving forward. Audi. Waspround Duck Technique Terms and conditions apply.
0: We are all beginning to get back to business, so it's time to let customers know. Onpost commerce is here to help you get through. And nothing gets through to your customers like direct mail. We put your message directly into their hands and their homes, targeting key areas in your locality, delivered by a familiar face that you can trust. See how effective direct mail can be for your business. At onpost.com forward slash commerce. Onpost commerce. For your world. Terms and conditions apply.